the word myth. Reflections on the Gospel of John, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 2 comes from the word mew, which means to close the mouth and close the eye, and not register what just happened. And it's an absolute symbol for our time. And it's happening, versions of it are happening everywhere because we don't know how else to reconvene a culture that has fallen apart. And so we return to these things, always trying knowing that it will, we don't quite know, but intuitively we know what Aeschylus' chorus knew, and that is that as long as the voice of the victim is heard, it'll never hold together. We have to find some way, if we're going to follow Nietzsche and, and Heidegger, we're going to have to find some way to gag the voice of the victim. And the truth is we cannot do it because the Gospels have made that impossible. And I'll read this little passage to you from, of all places, Whitaker Chambers' autobiography. It's passing strange that I would quote Whitaker Chambers in this regard. But he talks about a German diplomat, the, the daughter of a German diplomat, that uh, he knew in Moscow, had a Moscow uh, portfolio, who was very sympathetic with the Soviets, and suddenly, all of a sudden, he renounced all sympathy with the Soviets. And uh, his daughter, who still had some of these sympathies, was a little embarrassed by what her father had done, you know. And so Chambers talked to her about why was this. Uh, and he writes uh, in his book, she, he says, She loved her father, and the irritation of his defection embarrassed her. He was immensely pro-Soviet, she said. And then, you will laugh at me, the daughter talking, but you must, must not laugh at my father. And then, one night, in Moscow, he heard screams. That's all. He heard screams. In quote, then Chambers comments, she did not know at all that she had swept away the logic of the mind, the logic of history, the logic of politics, the myth of the 20th century with five annihilating words. One night he heard screams. That's what's happening in our world. That's what's happening, is the other logos will not be suppressed. The logos of the victim will not be suppressed. And it is the revelation of the living God. And it is being revealed in the face of the presumptuous claims of the false God that has us all in script. The God of desire and violence. Girard says, the distinctiveness of the true Logos has never been noticed, since to miss it is exactly the same thing as being under the illusion of welcoming it while participating in the, pro while participating in the process of its expulsion. People believe they are making a place, an honored place for the Christian Logos in the Christian city. They think they are giving it the earthly home it has never had. But in fact, they are retrenching the logos of myth. And in a few pages later, the logos of love puts up no resistance. It allows itself to be expelled by the logos of violence. 
but its expulsion is revealed in a more and more obvious fashion. And by the same process, the logos of violence is revealed as what can only exist by expelling the true logos and feeding upon it in one way or another. So John says, in the beginning was a murderer, a liar, and the father of lies. Chapter 8. And in the prologue he says, in the beginning was the logos, the word. And what he means by that word is the prophetic word, the call of the living God to love. The, the one commandment in the Gospel of John is to love one another. How do you live in the light of the living God? You love one another. In the very beginning is that call to love one another. And because we have fallen under the spell of the logos of violence and the false god that it conjures out of its own bloodiness, we have we found a way to experience camaraderie at the expense of a victim. This is an artificial thing. It came to me as a, as a little didactic uh, suggestion, and I'll share it with you. Completely artificial, uh, but it might... Uh, as a linguistic device. The two terms, convocation and evocation. We are being called by the word, by the logos of Heraclitus, the logos of violence, uh, on one hand, and the logos, the Johannine logos, the logos of love, on the other. A convocation is that call that comes, which is really the cry of the crowd. And when we are under the spell of that convocation, we feel our lives to be meaningful. This is the thing, you know, we have to say that. Because this is, if we're going to break the spell, we have to admit the power that we're having to break. When we, when we, are, when we feel this sense of camaraderie, we're under that spell and it is the convocation. And we cannot hear, as, as Eliot said, we cannot hear that word. The word, the silent word. You see, evocation might be thought of as a kind of reference to this other logos, the logos of love. Evocation means to be called out. Convocation is to be called in. And evocation means to be called out. Just as the word ecclesia, which is the word for church, means to be called out of that convocation. And so we go through the modern world with these voices in our ears of the two logoi. But really, it's not so much that, that one is on a loudspeaker and that it drowns out the other one. It's something more it's something closer to home that makes us impervious to the logos of the Christian revelation and the logos of love. And this, I think, is where Girard also makes an important contribution, but it, again, it is one that is not original, and he would be the first to applaud the fact that it's not. What causes us to have, as, as Stephen said to the Sanhedrin, pagan hearts and pagan ears? We can have the best religion in the world, 
have the highest form of piety, we can do this and that, have all the best intentions, etc., etc. Stephen says you have pagan hearts and pagan ears. What causes this paganization of our hearts and, and ears? It is mimetic desire, desire awakened by a mediator of desire, which is exactly what the serpent does in the Garden of Eden. The Bible starts with an analysis of the fall in terms of our capitulation to mimetic desire. I mention this not... Well, I mention this because the question is how do we stop having pagan hearts and pagan ears? If we try to solve the problem of violence at the level of violence, we will never, ever, ever, ever solve it. It cannot be solved at that level. The violence will continue to spiral out of hand if we try to solve violence at the level of violence. It has to be solved at the level of desire. Epithumia is the Greek word for desire. And thumos means sacrifice. means sacrifices to the gods. So a desire, the etymology of, of desire, Greek word for desire, has sacrifice in it. It's sacrificial. The nature of desire is sacrificial. It drives towards sacrifice. It awakens social passions and social melodramas that can only be cleansed from the social scene sacrificially. And this is, the, this is how we develop pagan ears and pagan hearts because we, we indulge in that mimetic game-playing, the, the awakening of mimetic desire and the contagion of mimetic desire. And, it, and we generate out of that indulgence uh, the kind of social craziness that can only be eliminated by finding a common enemy. We can only overcome our social frictions generated by that kind of nonsense by finding a common enemy. I can summarize what I think is important about the prologue. In the beginning was the Logos, and the, and, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And through that Logos, all things came to be that came to be. In the beginning was the call. The Bible is right. God calls us into life. We are called into life. I talked earlier about convocation and evocation. There's another little thing I would put off on the side of that in brackets called evolution. It's a perfectly respectable scientific insight. But we must not capitulate to it. It is not... Consciousness, my friends, is not evolving. It will never evolve. Nature evolves. Consciousness does not evolve. We are called... And we are called either by the voice of the Heracliton Logos, the convoking voice, con the voice of convocation, or we are called by this other voice. And the prologue says, this other voice calls us into life. All things that came to be, came to be through that call. I would say this, I would translate this, except by hearing and responding to that call, we merely exist. We do not come to be. We come to be precisely to the degree that we respond to the call. 
And that call is taking place in a world which on one hand is, is, uh, is cacophonous with the call of the, of the primitive sacred, of the, of, the, of the logos of violence, and on the other hand has convinced itself that consciousness is, is evolving and it doesn't involve a response to a call. And there in the midst of all that stands the gospel saying otherwise. My friend Andrew McKenna, who's a literary critic, speaks of the biblical literature as uh, texts which understand us better than we understand ourselves. And he says our challenge is to approach these texts in such a way as to close the gap between their understanding, their superior understanding of us, and our inferior understanding of ourselves. So it's in that spirit that I would like to approach the first verses of the, of the Gospel of John proper, that is to say the verses after the prologue. I have rearranged these because as I see it, there are two main themes. And the first theme presented is the theme that's more perplexing to us moderns. And I want to work my way toward that first theme by beginning with the second theme. And the second theme comes out of the two stories that uh, we have in chapter 2 of the gospel, the wedding feast at Cana and the cleansing of the temple. I'm gonna, we know these stories very well. I'm not going to do any detailed uh, analysis of them. As a matter of fact, most of the things I'm going to do, I do a few things with etymology, but most of what I'm going to do today is not in any, is not uh, uh, exegetical in any scientific way or historical way. Uh, but I will try to uh, get to what I think are the deeper implications of the story. So, the wedding feast at Cana we know very well. Jesus, his disciples, his mother go to a wedding in a village called Cana and uh, lo and behold the ceremony is not over but the wine is out and uh, Jesus' mother asked Jesus to do something about it he responds in what appears to be a very cold and aloof way his hour has not come nevertheless uh, the stewards are instructed to do what he, what he asked them uh, and there were six stone water jars standing there meant for the Jewish rites of purification now, the size of these jars and the fact that they are stoned in, indicates that they would not be the kind of things found at, a, at a, a private home in a village the size of Cana. It would be more like what would be found in the temple. And in any event, they obviously refer to a very prominent feature of first century Jewish life. Orthodox Jews of, uh, of Jesus' time, as we know from other passages in the Gospel, were very preoccupied with the, the problem of impurity and the ritual washings required and other things required in order to preserve one's uh, um, purity and prevent contamination with what is defiled or sinful. When Jesus behaved in a way that seemed cavalier with regard to these strictures and rituals and so on, uh, he invited the ire of those who, who, who thought of them as, as being fundamental and essential. So this story is really about the, uh, the collision, perhaps a little too strong a term, 
between the ministry of Jesus and the conventional religion of his time. We could say, lest we think this has something to do with uh, uh, the Jewishness of this religion, there is always a collision between the ministry of Jesus or the spirit of the paraclete that, 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 that Jesus left us and the conventional religions of the time. So this is a paradigmatic collision, not one unique to first century Judaism. The fact that it occurred in its first full form in that time is terribly instructive to us, uh, but it is not specific to that. Okay, notice that the wine, there is no wine. These are, these are jars not for wine, but for ritual washings. Jesus says, fill the jars with water. Note, they are not full. They have been depleted. Even the washing, even the, the religion of purification is somehow deficient. And instead of rejecting it for the wine, you see what I'm saying is that you have the ritual washings and the wine as two images of religious life, two ways of experiencing religious life. The nervous one, the one that is always afraid that the God will somehow become vengeful because of our impurities, and certain uh, acts of, uh, of uh, propitiation must take place and purification rituals. That's the religion of the purification jar. And then there is the religious life of the wine. And what we have in this story is the contrast between those two. But notice Jesus does not dismiss the ritual washing jars. In Matthew's Gospel, he says, I came to fulfill the... Uh, I, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. You get a, a, an image of that here. He says, fill it with water. So the first thing he does is he fills the rituals, you could say, with meaning, and then he transforms them. He, uh, you could say, for our purposes, you could say, he makes those rituals meaningful. He makes them, what I'm going to try to do with certain rituals this morning, is make them intelligible. Uh, whether or not I can make them meaningful, I don't know. But the first task is to make these rituals uh, full and then to submit them to the transformation. And he transforms the water into wine and the steward uh, says, this is why do you save the, to the bridegroom, why do you save the best wine uh, for the last? Three things I want to note in passing. I want to spend most of the time on the next story. Number one, the gentleness of this transition from one dispensation to another. Not a rejection, but filling it and then transforming it. A continuity and a discontinuity at the same time. Very gentle. Now you must also, the second thing I want to point out is that uh, the uh, devout Jews of the time were were habituated to these rituals and they clung to them not only because they ordered life 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 revolved around the performance of these of these rituals and they gave a certain coherence to life they gave a stability to life one knew what was clean what was unclean what one did to get unclean and what one did to clean oneself up again it, it made the world intelligible. And it provided those who participated in these rituals with an identity, which is very important. 
gave them a religious and cultural identity. So, when Jesus begins to offer an alternative to this, he runs into the fundamental human phenomenon in the 20th century as in the first, which is we tend to cling to those rituals to which we have been habituated. And finally, not to be missed, is that this all takes place in furtherance of a marriage. In the background of this story is marriage. That is to say, permanent, lifelong commitment. And that's what I want to stress as well this morning, that it is in furtherance of that reality that this all this takes place. So we must not forget the, the daring boldness of permanent, lifelong commitment. The word troth, we say we are betrothed, is the root for the word truth. We discover truth in troth. And this is the point to which I want to return at, at the end of today's session or toward the end of today's session. The second story, equally well known, is the cleansing of the temple. John, the author of this gospel, has brought it into the beginning of the gospel. It usually takes place in the synoptics right before the, the passion story. It triggers the opposition, Jerusalem opposition, and the passion follows uh, immediately thereafter. John moves it to the beginning because he wants to start out in the clearest and starkest of terms by showing that Jesus and his ministry represent a challenge to the temple. And it has to be seen in that way and that Jesus presents himself as the new temple. So it begins. Just before the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple he found people selling cattle and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting at their counters there Taking out a whip made of cord, he drove them all out of the temple, cattle and sheep as well, scattered the money changers' coins, knocked their tables over, said to the pigeon sellers, take all of this out of here and stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. It's all very familiar to us. Then Jesus' disciples remembered the words of Scripture, zeal for your house will devour me. Now, the Jews intervened and said, when John uses the word Jews, many, many times he means Jewish authority. Almost everybody in this story is Jewish. There's, there are a few Samaritans here and there and a Gentile here and there, but most people in this story are Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. His disciples are Jewish. When John uses Jews, he most, most very frequently means Jewish authorities, the opposition to Jesus. Sometimes he uses it to mean the Judeans, the people living in the southern regions around Jerusalem as opposed to the Galileans. Sometimes he uses it in a general way, meaning the people. We must realize that in Christian history, not because of this evangelist, but because of our own predilections, this uh, curiosity about this gospel, that is to say that the word Jews is used this way, and there is a tremendous invective in this gospel against, against the Jews at the time because there was a tension between the Christians and the Jews. But because of this, this gospel has uh, been 
used to justify anti-Semitism. It's very important for us to, to understand that and to, and, to, and to break with that and to understand the deeper implications of this. Uh, this the, we all stand under the judgment of the cross and not just some of us. If some of us, if only some of us stand under the judgment of the cross, it is not what it claims to be. So, I don't need to tell you that, but I, I just want to make the point. The Jews, so, but I won't stop every time the word comes up because it comes up dozens and dozens of times. The Jews intervened and said to Jesus, what sign can you show us to justify what you have done? This is a little, this is funny a little bit because Jesus had just performed this incredible prophetic sign like those performed by Isaiah and Jeremiah and, uh, and so on. And they didn't get it. They want a sign to, to, for him to show a sign that indicates his authority to do this and as, as we know from the other Gospels, Jesus tends not to answer questions on the level at which they were asked. And so he says, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up again. And again, he catches them flat-footed. They say, it has taken us 46 years to build this sanctuary, and you are going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, the Gospel says, he was speaking of the sanctuary of his body, meaning the sanctuary of his person. And when Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed scripture and the words that he had said. <clears throat> Twice in this story, the word remembered comes up and it's very important for the, the uh, evangelists of the fourth gospel. Remember doesn't mean to recall something in detail. It doesn't mean historical recall. It means deeper understanding. This, uh, this gospel understands that we grow in deeper understanding of the one revelatory event, uh, the, the Christ event, and that we deepen our understanding of its, of its meaning as, as time goes on, that that is the task of the paraclete uh, to, to take us to deeper levels of that understanding. And already you have it in the gospel. They remembered later, and then they understood, which is, which is what we're doing here today. We're later. We're trying to understand. It's the same process, remembering. Well, I want to begin that remembering by doing a recall kind of remembering, simply a historical fact. The temple at Jerusalem was a sacrificial shrine. It existed for animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice. That was what was at its center. On festivals, particularly, particularly the Passover festival, but others as well, great numbers of pilgrims would come into Jerusalem, each under the obligation to offer sacrifice at the temple, meaning blood sacrifice, going to the temple, buying their, their, their oxen or their lambs or their pigeons or whatever. As they go in, this is why, the, this is why there's a commercial operation there, also changing money because they come from regions using different coinage. So, you, so the, this, this was not uh, irrelevant. This thing that Jesus uh, that evoked Jesus' desire is not irrelevant to the temple operation. Without it, it wouldn't function. These people couldn't come from these great distances driving these animals. They came at, at, at a, good, uh, a lot of hardship involved, and then they got the animals there and they sacrificed them. So what Jesus seems to be angry about is not peripheral to the, to the operation of the temple. Secondly, at the moment the sacrifices begin, 
all of these people are lined up. There are great numbers of priests. All of these people are lined up with their sacrificial animals. And the slaughter begins in haste so that the knife, the sacrificial knife is falling, you know, with great rapidity. Blood is splattering all over the place. The, the, the priests are knee-deep in blood, bellowing, braying, a cacophony of, of a bloody sacrifice. Now, I just want, I'm trying to, because we think of the, we, we don't realize that the temple that Jesus is challenging is a sacrificial temple. It is a place designed for blood sacrifice. At the, in, in Jesus' time, there, the, the, the temple was, was uh, constructed with this uh, elaborate drainage system so that all this blood would leave the sacrificial place itself and be drained through this uh, series of, of, of uh, canals and pipes down into this great valley behind the temple where it would dry and then the farmers would come after it was dry and dig it up and take it and put it on their fields which is a, which is a remnant of the ancient sacrifice which uh, was, al- was always said to cause the fields to be fertile, you see. Okay, I mention that because I want to do an archaeology of the temple today, so to speak. I want to, I want to ask, if Jesus in the John's Gospel challenges the temple and replaces it, we have to find out, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that he replaces? And how is it that it could be replaced? And what did it do for us before he came to replace it? In other words, do we run some risk? If the temple, the temple, of course, represents not just the Jewish shrine, it represents the whole anthropology, the whole of human anthropology based on animal sacrifice, which is to say all of human primitive religion. All traditional primitive society had at their center sacrificial rituals, animal sacrificial rituals. Rituals which were no doubt uh, versions of sacrifices which had been originally human sacrifices. And what I want to do today is look at the archaeology of that or the anthropology of that as though we're going, uh, pun intended, into the deeper, flo- deeper stories of the temple to find out what is this temple thing all about. If Jesus is going to replace this, how and what risk do we run in having him do so? The... The synoptic gospel corollary to this is that when Jesus dies in Matthew's gospel, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, the, the curtain of the, the temple curtain is rent in two. The curtain over the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, is rent in two. It's, just, it's the synoptic way of speaking of this same uh, challenge. Not one stone will be left on another. Uh, kind of understanding that Jesus, the, that, that the life and crucifixion of Jesus represent the destruction of the temple and the whole anthropology for which it stands. Now, Jesus says, take this out of here and stop turning my father's house into a market. The Johannine Jesus has a special relationship well, the, the Jesus of the synoptics as well has a special relationship to God who is his father in the synoptics, his Abba. Um, the Johannine Jesus 
understands that his father's house is not of this world. He, under, uh, he speaks of his father's uh, house later on as having many mansions. Uh, his father's house is not something of this world. He says to the Samaritan, uh, the day will come when we will worship God in spirit and truth, neither here nor in Jerusalem. So the Johannine Jesus is no more, uh, is no more uh, committed to the, to the temple shrine in Jerusalem uh, than the synoptic Jesus, less so. So, we must not misinterpret this reference, turning my father's house uh, into a market. Jesus is interested in his father's house, but it's another kind of house. When he says, you have turned it into a market, he is not just condemning the, 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 those who traded in animals and changed coins, because what was at the center of the, the temple shrine was a, an exchange program between orthodox religionists and their God, always on the verge of a fit of rage. And so they bartered the sacrifice itself, which was at the heart of the temple, was itself a bartering. And so the condemnation here is not just of those who are selling holy cards around the Vatican. It is of something at the center of it. It's, it's, it's the process itself that, is, that has been turned into an exchange, you see. And Jesus wants to turn that relationship into one of love and not one of fear and intimidation. That's why it's wine, the wine of joy, and not the, not the scrupulosity of ritual washings. So, it says here, his disciples remembered, when he said those words, remembered the words of Scripture, zeal for your house will devour me. Now, as I said, they don't remember it in the literal technical sense mean but they remember in the sense that they now they understand and i wonder if maybe christians have failed to remember it as well as the disciples in this gospel remembered it the passage is from uh, psalm 69 one of the most amazing of all the psalms and the most all the psalms are, <clears throat> are amazing but i want to read portions of that psalm and try to imagine what the disciples might have remembered. Or let's not even try to pretend. I don't know what John meant. I don't know what the disciples remembered. All this was written 50 years after Jesus died. The question is, what can we remember when we hear these words and we remember this passage? Last week I talked about uh, Agamemnon and Iphigenia, the sacrifice uh, of the uh, to, to, that, that will restore order and, uh, and get things going again. And I said that the voice of the victim must be extinguished if the sacrifice is, is to be successful. If, it's not, if the voice of the victim is heard, uh, chaos uh, can occur. So, in, in the Hebrew Bible, we get a lot of sacrificial violence, a, a good, uh, a great deal of effort to, made to mythologize, if I can use that word, to, to, to attribute the violence to God. Clearly it's human violence. But attributing it, attributing it to God. But it never quite works. 
And there comes up out of this people, you see, all the way from Abraham and Isaac uh, to being chosen as slaves and so on, there is in this tradition an empathy for the victim that cannot be suppressed. And so up out of this grand canyon of the Old Testament comes this voice of the victim. And it's one of the most, anthropologically, it's one of the most thrilling experiences to turn a page and go from one psalmist, one psalm which is saying, you know, God come and rain your wrath on them and torture them. And I I think I even quoted one of those last week where, uh, where, you know, one's praying for God to to, uh, dash their brains. You turn the page and hear, you suddenly hear the voice of the victim in the most incredible way. So, for instance, Psalm 69 reads, Save me, O God. The water is already up to my neck. I'm sinking in the deepest swamp. There's no foothold. I have stepped into deep water, and the waves are washing over me. So far, it seems this, there's no hint yet that this is a social phenomenon. We don't know what it is. He could say, well, I'm, I'm having a depression. Uh, things haven't been going very well. I'm, you know, there, we need, there's, there's too much rain you see, the crops are being washed. Well, all that could be. Well, what is it? Worn out with calling, my throat is hoarse. My eyes are strained looking for my God. More people hate me for no reason than I have hairs on my head. More are groundlessly hostile than I have hair to show. Now, remember, this is the voice coming out which says their hostility is arbitrary. It's arbitrary. The arbitrariness of our selection of victims is the one thing we must, we must remain oblivious to. If we ever realize how arbitrarily we select our victims in order to create the social camaraderie that is created with, by having a common enemy, the game is up. If we realize we're, it's arbitrary, and here is a voice, a canonical voice, an inspired voice saying it's arbitrary. They hate me for no reason. It is for you I am putting up with insults that cover me with shame and make me a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's other sons. Zeal for your house devours me. An alien to his own family. Zeal for your house devours me. I'll come back to that. Let me just read this. I become their laughing stock, the gossip of people sitting at the city gate, and the theme of drunken <clears throat> songs. I think of this, th- these three lines as the seeds of the myth. If it works, if it were to work, and he was expelled from the community, and the community came back from the wilderness after having expelled him arm in arm singing the national anthem, they would have a myth. And the myth would have been generated when he was a laughing stock and they were gossiping at the city gate and he had become the theme of drunken songs. And then you would have the makings of a myth about this one who came in defiled and demonic and we threw him out under God's orders and now we became, the plague was over, you see. The seeds of the myth are there. And then he goes on to say, pull me out of this swamp. He returns to this image of the water rising. There's something implacable about this. It's as though it doesn't have anything to do, do with human volition. Something is set in motion which is, which is 
has, has the implacability of a natural catastrophe. That's very important. It's not somebody, somebody making a decision and making this thing happen. It's a social... It's a, it's, it's a phenomenon of social contagion that operates autonomously. So he says, Pull me out of this swamp. Let me sink no further. Let me escape from those who hate me. Save me from the deep water. The deep water is what? Those who hate me. I'll come back to that. Do not let the waves wash over me. Do not let the deep swallow me or the pit close its mouth on me. <clears throat> the waves over me and the pit close its mouth on me is the myth becoming reality. The myth is that God wanted him out of here, that he was in fact possessed, etc., etc., whatever it is. And he says, don't let that happen. Now, remarkable to have this voice of the, of the victim come up out of here and remarkable that this is quoted in conjunction with the challenge to the temple. Jesus Jesus' disciples remembered what he had said about don't make my father's house into a place of exchange. And they remembered, uh, when, when he said that, they remembered this line, zeal for your house devours me. But you know what? I think it's the other way around. If you go back and read 69, Psalm 69, look at this. Uh, it is for you I'm putting up with insults that cover me with shame, that make me a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's other sons, zeal for your house devours me. The psalmist, no doubt, is pious, and his persecutors, no doubt, are impious or, or cynical, and they have seized upon his piety as one of the marks that distinguish him and make him available for their persecution, no doubt. But in Jesus... The thing is turned. The valence is turned. For Jesus, zeal for your father's house devours me. It's not Jesus' zeal. It's the zeal of his opponents for the temple that is devouring him. So we read this gospel wrong when we think it's a rep- it means that Jesus, was wanted to, that Jesus was a Josiah who was just a temple reformer. Not so. The Johannine Jesus, I don't... I, I don't know what the historical Jesus is. I don't know about the history. We have the Gospels. We make the best of them we can. It doesn't seem like he was a temple reformer, I must say. But it's absolutely clear in the Johannine Gospel that he is not a temple reformer. He has come to replace the temple. And the zeal that will devour him, the zeal for the, for the temple that will devour him is the zeal of his opponents for the temple. Now, I want to take this question of water, the rising water, the, the Bible is, a, is a, uh, a, a, an encyclopedia, anthropological encyclopedia. The story it tells is the story that, which is the story it tells is the story of we humans trying to awaken from primitive religion and to, and to come to know the God of love. That, I think, is the story of the Bible. But it tells us the whole thing. It tells us the journey that we've been on and we, sh- we see ourselves slowly extricating ourselves from primitive religion and one step forward and two steps back sometimes. It's all there. So we get the voice of the victim in 69, but in Ezekiel 47, we get something else. We get the temple 
functioning from the point of view of those who are, receive, who are its beneficiaries, who are its religious and social beneficiaries. And then you realize that the temple, which is the, which is the architectural manifestation of the sacrificial anthropology, sacrificial humanity, you realize what incredible benefits it could bestow on, on those committed to it. So I'll read to you Ezekiel 47. The angel brought me back to the entrance to the temple of the Lord. And I saw water flowing out from beneath the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the facade of the temple was toward the east. The water flowed down from the southern side of the temple, south of the altar. The angel led me outside by the north gate and around to the outer gate, facing the east, where I saw water trickling from the southern side. Then when he had walked off to the east with the measuring cord in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and had me wade through the water, which was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand, and once more he had me wade through the water, which was now knee deep. Again, he measured off a thousand and had me wade. The water was up to my waist. At this point, uh, parenthetically, I'll pause and remember the psalmist in Psalm 69. He's having another experience of this water. You see, Once more he measured off a thousand. There was now a river through which I could not wade, for the water had risen so high it had, to, it had become a river and that could not be crossed except by swimming. He asked me, Have you seen this son of man? Then he brought me to the bank of the river where he made me sit. Along the bank of the river, I saw very many trees on, on both sides. He said to me, Wherever the river flows, every sort of living creature that can multiply shall live, and there shall be abundant fish, and whatever this water, and wherever this water comes, the sea will be made fresh. Along both banks of the river, fruit trees of every kind shall grow. Their leaves shall not fade, nor their fruit fail. Every month they shall bear, fruit, they, they shall bear fresh fruit, and they shall be watered by the flow from the sanctuary. Their fruit shall serve for food and their leaves for medicine. So from the flow of the sanctuary, we know what flowed out from the sanctuary was blood. But here, this, we're understanding not the, the grim physical details of the sacrificial scene, but its social benefit. The fact is it, in, it bestowed social harmony made possible a kind of peace. And we cannot gain, that must not be gainsaid because if we, don't, if we don't understand that, we can't understand what's involved in the challenge to it, the, the boldness of the challenge to it. But you must see, Ezekiel 47 sees that rising water from the point of view of what it does for the community. And the psalmist of Psalm 69 sees it from the point of view of its victim. Both of those have to be kept in mind. That's what makes the Bible great, because it presents both. It presents both. How could sacrifice make peace? I went over some of this last week, but how could the temple, the sacrificial shrine, make bestow these kind of benefits? That's really the question. The archaeology goes back a little bit to Leviticus 9, where we get Aaron's first uh, liturgy. Aaron the priest, the head of the, the, the one from whom the priestly line descends. In his, 
inauguration liturgy, the following happens. Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them, and having, and having sacrificed the sin offering, these are animals slaughtered on the altar, having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw this, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Catharsis. The power of catharsis. Religious catharsis. Now, catharsis has this ability to... Uh, sort of realign all the metal filings of our emotions. So if we're, if we're sitting in a social scene where we're antagonistic and bitching and moaning and, and uh, having grudges and figuring out schemes and so on, if we submit occasionally to a catharsis, the whole thing gets re... all the metal filings get realigned and we're all realigned the same way and we all feel this tremendous camaraderie and we, we've been... We've been stunned, and the st it's like a it's like an electric shock, and the electric shock dispels all these all these what I call mimetic animosity, and so we are a people again, and a sacrificial ritual does this. It particularly does it if it's a human victim because there's something absolute there's something inherently cathartic about somebody being sacrificed on an altar. This is what primitive religion did. As this religion, not the only one to move away from, to move from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, but, but the only one who made that move uh, on moral grounds. This is very important. On moral grounds. This, as the Jewish people move away from that, they must enhance their liturgy, surcharge their liturgy, so that they will have make up for what's lacking, cathartically, by abandoning a human victim. And this sounds like this looks like they're they're doing it. They're creating liturgies that are that are that are sacrificially cathartic and therefore able to restore peace to the social environment, without using human victims. But shortly after this a liturgy that's almost indistinguishable from this, except for this curious detail about the fact that, uh, that uh, Aaron's two sons lit their censers from the wrong fire. The liturgy goes haywire, and the two priests are killed. And we're told that the, the flame leaped out and killed the two priests, but we have to understand, these liturgies uh, were, were on the border between actual events and controlled events. They were frenzied events, that's why they ended in catharsis, that involved violence, and the violence could easily spill over into human violence. And I'll give you an example of how that happened uh, in a story from 1 Kings, the story of Elijah. There's a challenge in 1 Kings. By the way, why am I doing this? Because I want to, I want to investigate the archaeology of the temple and ask if Jesus replaces the temple, what is it that's being replaced, and, how, and, and what does that mean for us? that we no longer have a temple. Can we just walk away from it? Uh, so, this is why I'm trying, this is the background I'm trying to lay here. Uh, in 1 Kings, 
Elijah is the sole prophet of Yahweh, and there are 400 prophets of Baal, the, Can the Canaanite fertility god. And Elijah confronts them and says, we will have a contest. There, in, in, in Hebrew scriptures, there are a number of liturgical showdowns. And you realize that the, the, the liturgical showdown and the military showdown are indistinguishable. They are the same thing. The question is, who is going to be able to claim their God did it? That's what it comes to. That's why it's a liturgical showdown. So, uh, Elijah says to them, build your altar, sacrifice your animals, do whatever you do, your liturgy. Just do your liturgy. Let's see if it works. They all gather around. They put their animals on this. You see, the, oh, well, let me say. Elijah says, you call on the name of your God, and I shall call on the name of mine. The God who answers with fire is God indeed. The God who answers with fire is God indeed. That is the quintessential principle of sacrificial religion. Fire here being a synonym for human violence. Elias Canetti, the, the Nobel laureate in literature, wrote a book called Crowds in Power. And in that, he, he does a long essay on fire as a... As a Synonym for and a symbol for crowd violence, mob violence. Uh, I'll just take a couple of sentences from that, from his treatise. He says, fire is the same wherever it breaks out. It spreads rapidly. It is contagious and insatiable. It can break out anywhere and with great suddenness. It is multiple. It is destructive. It has an enemy. It dies. It acts as though it were alive and is so treated. All this is true as well of the crowd. Indeed, it would be difficult to list its attributes more accurately. Elijah says, the God who answers with fire is God indeed. So he says, you do your liturgy and I'll do mine. They set up their altar. They go into a frenzy. The, the, their, their, the pyre that they have arranged doesn't burst into flames. And they, at, at the very end, they begin to, to flail themselves and, and cut their own skin. Now, you say, what is the fire they're trying to get started by cutting their own skin? What contagious phenomenon are they trying to be begin by cutting their own skins? You see, this, this is what makes this... If we put away the anti-pieties and the pieties and read this text, it's amazing. But it doesn't work. And so then Elijah builds an altar to, to Yahweh, puts the, the sacrificial animal on it, digs a trench around it, pours water on it to show that uh, this is not going to be some trick. And then he, he, it says he gathers the people closer to him. He, he brings the people together a little closer. And they pray that their God do this. Well, then it says, Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the holocaust and wood and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell on their faces. Which is a biblical way of saying successful liturgy. It's like, bingo. They fell on their faces. Yahweh is God, they cried. Yahweh is God. Next verse. Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them escape. They seized them, and Elijah took them down to the Wadi Kisan, and he slaughtered them there, all of them. I mentioned that, I mean, this is a liturgy and a sacrificial event, a sacri what. A, a spontaneous sacrificial crisis and a liturgy at the same time. 
It's a mob lynching, so to speak. It's a mob frenzy, a murderous frenzy, and a, and a liturgy at the same time, or side by side, spilling over one into the other. Heraclitus said that violence is the father and king of all things and that it makes some gods and some mortals, some masters and some slaves. In other words, the logos of violence creates the fundamental distinction between the sacred and the profane. The sacred is always transfigured violence. That's why it must never be touched. If it is ever touched by the profane, what is the, what are the result? <clears throat> what happens when the profane touches the sacred, violence. Always. That's what happens, violence. The sacred is violence transfigured in a certain way that must not be approached, must not be recognized, except as, as immutable and unchangeable and transcendent, must not be touched. And the logos of violence creates that absolute distinction. But it also, says Heraclitus, creates the social distinctions. And in the Hebrew Bible, we have a lot of, of, of this in terms of the, of the Levites and, the, and the, the priest and where you stand in the sacrificial order of things uh, and so on. But I want to read you a sacrificial story more uh, contemporary, which is uh, one that appeared in the Los Angeles Times in April of uh, 1991. <clears throat> Again, it's reminiscent of Agamemnon and Iphigenia. Uh, it's a story from India, Merana, India, a little village in India, and I'll read uh, portions of it. Not in order to be uh, scandalous, but in order to investigate the deeper regions or the, or the lower stories of the, of the phenomenon we call the temple. What is it? It was at the entrance to this little village of mud and brick beside an ancient shrine to the Lord Shiva the Destroyer that Mirana's star-crossed lovers ended their lives side by side. From a sturdy limb of Mirana's holy banyan tree, Rajni 16 and Bijendra 20 were hanged just after 8 a.m. for all the village to see. A symbol of order, the elders had said, of tradition and of the village's izat, which is the Hindi word for chastity and honor of Apparently, the young woman Rajni was a high ca high caste Hindu. After all, one of the Jats who owned the land, the village, and power over the likes of Bijendra and his fellow Jatavs. Bijendra, with whom Rajni had eloped three days before, was from a backward caste, traditionally so impure and inferior that they became known as Hinduism's untouchables. So separate are the Jats and the Jatavs not unlike Shakespeare's Montagues and Capulets, only centuries older and with a feud far more stubborn, that each has its own well in Mirana. The Jats live on one side in houses of stone and tile, the Jatavs on the other in huts of mud and straw. Their separate realities intersect only when the Jats need a Jatav to pick a crop, build a house, or mend a shoe. For both sides... Rajnis and Bijendra's was a love unpure. They had to die. With that, even Rajnis' father, Ganga 
Ram agreed. For me, the Jat elder had said at the night-long meeting in the village square that condemned the couple to hang March 27th, the girl is already dead, her father said. And so he helped string up his daughter, her lover, and the couple's best friend from the century-old banyan tree. I won't go into the details. They did not die. The hanging did not. They tried to jerk the rope. It didn't work. They finally burned them to death. The elders burn, uh, quoting from the article again, the elders burned them to death, Jat and Jatav together, so that none would forget this day. That could be that phrase, so that none would forget this day, is, is, is absolutely essential to uh, primitive religion. We must never forget this. Relegare means to bind us back to that. Never forget this. See? Now, the, the journalist then says, in a politically paralyzed country where three national governments have come and gone in 18 months and where the institutions of government and its bureaucracy have all but ceased to function at the grassroots level in many regions, defenders of the elders of Mirana say they are to be commended for keeping a semblance of order in a village that seems centuries removed from the ideal of the modern Indian state. And it goes on to say, Now Mirana's modern-day Romeo and Juliet have become a symbol of a far different sort of India, a grisly illustration of the magnitude of the forces defying its march into the modern age forces increasingly outstripping logic and the rule of law as the divisions in its society grow ever deeper. Uh, this I want to emphasize this observation. A grisly illustration of the magnitude of the, of the forces defying its march into the modern age. What I'm trying to investigate here is the magnitude of the forces defying the Christian revelation. That is to say, the anthropological uh, law of gravity is sacrificial and and the and the audacity of challenging the temple and rent, and rendering it uh, defunct uh, presents the most incredible challenge the most incredible challenge because it means we must find a way to do what the temple did namely the temple kept us reasonably sane and civil and if we think we can walk away from it and remain sane and civil, we just will take a long detour and come right back into a grimmer version of it the way the people in this little village did. So that's why I'm trying to explore this a little bit. Now, either the people in this Indian village are mad, insane, or so morally inferior to us sitting in this room that, that we can dismiss them. And if that's true, all our ancestors are as well. Or what they did, however morally problematic it is, was not irrational. Now, you must understand, 
we have to stop doing that. But we have to understand why it was done. Because if we're going to stop doing it, we have to do what it did some other way. It made us sane and civil at the expense of the victim. It gave coherence. It created social order at the expense of the victim. If we're going to stop doing that at the expense of the victim, we have to find out another way to do it. And I say, we should say to the Gospels, if you're going to shut down the sacrificial system, you either give us a way to live civilly and sanely without it or get out of here. <laughs> don't get out of here with that boom, boom, boom and don't come back no more. Remember that old song? If you don't show us a way to live without this, we can't use it. So we have to, the world, the modern world particularly, has to say that to the, to the Gospels. Do you show us a way to live without this or not? And is it just some nice little thing, oh, we'll try to be better, be nice? It has to be something structural. It has to be something that doesn't just appeal to our good intentions. It has to be something fundamental. Because these are not, these are not things that happen at, at, at the level of the you know, cerebellum. These are fundamental things. It ha- and then next week when we talk about the being born again, we realize at the level at which we're talking about this process, something fundamental. Well, so the temple is a concrete symbol for the sacrificial system and the social and psychological stability it is able to foster in those societies where it has not been impaired by the empathy for its victims awakened by the Hebrew prophets and the Christian gospel. What did the temple do? The temple provided the catharsis which would override what I have called, using René Girard's terminology, the social passions born of mimetic desire. That is to say, uh, imitative desire, uh, rivalry, Resentment, covetousness, jealousy, envy, the social passions born of mimetic desire are overridden by this other kind of contagion. Mimetic desire is a contagion, and it builds toward fire, toward violence. And there's another kind of fire, the sacrificial fire, which is used to, to arrest that process and to, and to restore order at the expense of the victim. That's what the temple does. And what happens when the sacrificial system is compromised? As I just said, it's compromised by the Gospels and the Hebrew prophets. What happens when it's compromised? The, the Bible, start to finish, is a story of what happens when the sacrificial system starts to collapse. But I'd like to go outside the Bible for a second to Homer. The very beginning of the Iliad, the first lines are, Anger be now, this is the poet singing to his muse, Anger be now your song, immortal one. Achilles' anger, this, uh, I'm reading the Fitzgerald translation, Achilles, the anger of Achilles, doomed and ruinous. This is a story about anger. The, the Homeric Greek word is menis, M-E-N-I-S. The root, the etymology of that word means desire. But it is, and it, so in, it's, it's Homeric Greek, not, not New Testament Greek, but the, but the, correspondence between the New Testament words for, for wrath and desire and the Homeric Greek 
terms for for wrath and desire. It's very interesting that they would be that that the root would be the same in both cases. That they would be cognates of one another in both cases, desire and wrath. It's a story about wrath, the wrath born of desire. And as it begins, it says, Homer says, Begin it when the two men first contending broke with one another, the Lord Marshal Agamemnon, Atreus' son, and Prince Achilles. Okay. It starts with rivalry and a challenge by the by the junior officer to his superior. And Achilles says, I do all the fighting and you come back with all the loot. I do all the fighting and you come back with all the loot. And I'm sick of it. See? Well, a plague has been sent. They're suffering from a plague. Gerard says the plague is almost always a symbol for a social crisis, even though there may be some natural phenomenon that triggers it. It's almost always a symbol for a social crisis. There's a plague, and they're trying to figure out what... They know Apollo is visiting this plague upon them. And Achilles ponders it. He's the first to ponder it in the poem. What's going wrong? And he says, Has Apollo some quarrel with us for a failure in vows or hecatombs, sacrifices? Would mutton burned or smoking goat flesh make him lift the plague? In other words, his first assumption is, this social crisis has to do with the failure of a sacrifice. That there's something has gone wrong with our sacrificial arrangements or our sacrificial procedures. We have, we have not followed the rubrics exactly right or something. This happens in the Hebrew scriptures all the time too. There must be some reason for this, God. And it has to be... We, it, the first assumption is that it has to do with sacrifice. Sacrifices haven't worked in some way. Shakespeare, now remember, at the heart of this is a challenge by a lesser officer to his superior, Achilles to Agamemnon, a challenge unheard of in a world where the social stratifications are in place. Now remember, Heraclitus said, the logos of violence creates social differentiation. The masters and the slaves, the, the leaders and the led, the etc., etc. It creates a situation where the mimetic rivalry it, it, uh, it disinclines mimetic rivalry across these barriers. I can rival to some extent with those that are my equals and equals always rival if we're in, if we're in a mimetic frame of mind equals always rival. Equality creates the, the, the condition for rivalry if that's what we're doing if we're totally mimetic creatures that's what happens. So these structures exist to prevent us from looking at the, you know, at the king as he rides by, thinking, what's he doing up there? What's he know? I don't know, etc. It prevents that from happening. So here now, it's broken. And Achilles says, I do the fighting, you get all the goodies, I'm sick of it, and he walks out. It's a social crisis. Shakespeare treats it as the same social crisis in Troilus and Cressida, which is a study of the Trojan War. From the mimetic point of view, and totally, Shakespeare's constantly looking at the mimetic aspects of this, which Girard points out in, in a way that's overwhelming in his book, uh, The Theater of Envy. It's his study of Shakespeare. 
they come, the, the, the Greek leaders come to uh, Ulysses, who's the crafty one, the sort of wise and wily crafty one of the Greeks. And in Shakespeare, they come to Ulysses and they say, what's going on? There's this crisis in our camp. There's no more harmony. We're at, we're, everybody's bitching and moaning and at each other's throats. What's going on? And Ulysses says, now, Ulysses, uh, Shakespeare uses the term degree to mean social differentiations, social hierarchy. It's his word for social hierarchy. So Ulysses says, in response to this question, what's going wrong? He says, when degree is shaken, which is the latter of all high designs, the enterprise is sick. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. You see, if you have these social stratifications, we meet with a kind of... There's, a, there's certain... We have these uh, customs for how you greet one another, like in a military operation. You know how you greet somebody that's of a higher rank and so on. There's certain little things that you do. Everything is worked out in a, in a world where we all fit into this elaborate social scene. But take it away. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms. Here we have that water coming up again. You see that same image. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. So he goes right into the family society, the closest social unit, and blows it apart. Do we need to be told that in our day? For, so Ulysses goes on. Force should be right, or rather right and wrong, between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything include itself in power and power into will and will into appetite and appetite a universal wolf so doubly seconded with will and power must make perforce a universal prey and last eat up himself. Final, finally, self-annihilation. A frenzy that leads to self-annihilation. 